disciples in Damascus at once began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. How's everyone doing this morning? Good? It is gorgeous outside. I know we don't get fog very often around here, uh, but it's pretty neat when we do. I also like that it's November in two days and it's been 80. That, that's not bad. Um, anyways, uh, my name's Spencer. If you don't know, I lead the student ministry here at South Suburban. I'm honored. I'm excited to be here this morning. I wonder if this morning you do me the honor of letting me pray for us as we get going this morning. So if you bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this time. God, thank you for your word. I just pray, God, in this time, through these words, through your word, God, that we'd meet you this morning. Father, we'd be drawn into your presence because of your spirit. Lord, I just pray, would you work through me this morning? Would you have, have us have ears to hear what you have to say? Help me be your spokesperson this morning, God. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right, has anyone else in here ever been wrong and yet been completely convinced that was impossible? Anyone? Anyone? I couldn't think of one at a time for a moment in my life, and then I asked my wife, and I think you know how that went. But uh, I, there's a time in particular there that I thought of. Um, we had my in-laws in town, and we wanted to take them up on a real special day to go climb a 14er. And they'd never done that. Lindsay and I had done one or two and we said, this is going to be great. We're going to get up before dawn. We're going to just really hoof it. we got to be back in Parker for a birthday party by a certain time. So we got a really tight schedule, but we gotta, we're going to do it. So we get up. It's dark. We drive all the way up, going through fair play. We take a ride. We go through and head, start heads toward Alma. I don't know has anyone ever been to the, the town of Alma. I think the only thing it's got going for it is the highest town in North America. It is kind of neat. But we're on our way there, and I'm navigating. Um, and we're looking for a county road, right? So it's supposed to turn off. And I'm like, hey, it's like this is one of the most popular mountains to climb. It's going to be, and I don't need direct. And it's somewhere in this area. But I refuse to get my phone out because I'm a man, and I don't need directions. And so we're driving through the town, and I don't see any pull-offs. I don't see any signs. I don't see anything. So I go, okay, it must be past the town, but it's on this road. So we keep driving, and we start heading up Hoosier Pass. And before we know it, we're... We're at the top of Hoosier Pass, and there's, there's nothing. And then we start going down the other side. And that's when I thought, you know, there's a chance that we miss the turn because the mountains that we're climbing are that way, and we're going this way, right? So uh, we turn around. We get back to the top. We say, hey, there's the county road we're looking for. Right at the top of the pass, we found it. This is going to be great. We drive for 10, 15 minutes down this extremely treacherous road that ended up not being a road at all. And we realized it was the right road, but it was in the wrong county. So the joy continued. We turned around. We ended up going all the way back to the town of Alma and seeing the turnoff that I had missed because I was convinced that I was right. Um, I wish this story had a happy ending, but to be totally honest with you, we got about mm, 500 feet shy of the summit, realized we weren't going to make the party, so we had to turn around and come back. So... I guess the good ending of the story is I'm still married happily. Um, that's about all I've got for that. But um, in all seriousness, this story this morning, we see a man named Saul who's in a similar condition, right? He is convinced that he's right about Jesus and about Christians, right? Saul hated them. He hated their beliefs as a protector, right, as a Pharisee, a guardian of God's people, a guardian of the law. He knew that it was his job to keep God's people obedient to the way, to the truth, and so when he saw these 
These Christians saying something that he didn't believe in, that breaking their rules, he said, you know what? It's my job, it's our job to eradicate these people because they're a threat to God's people. And so we see that in verses one through seven, if you'd read with me, as Joe just did. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, the king of the religious order, and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is an ancient way of saying those who follow the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul hated Christians and their beliefs because of what he thought was right. The only problem was that Saul was wrong because Saul had, had never met Jesus. And so, so Jesus met Saul. Verse three, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. I wonder what that must have been like. I've told this message today, what happens when you meet Jesus? Because I firmly believe that there's nothing as powerful, as transformational, as soul-satisfying as meeting Jesus. If you believe that this morning, can I get an amen? I like it. All right. Now, imagine for a moment what this must have been like. I mean, you think Luke Skywalker was surprised when Darth Vader said those famous words, I am your father. Imagine how Saul must have felt a man dedicated, committed to eradicating the name of Jesus and anyone who took it, suddenly having what we call a theophany, a vision of God, something that all the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament had. And guess who's on the other side of the conversation? Jesus. Can you imagine? Let's look at verses eight and nine. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind. It did not eat or drink anything. I think these must have been three of the longest days of Saul's entire life. What happens when you meet Jesus? If you're taking notes this morning, the first thing, I think that happens when you meet Jesus is this. You stop being blind to your blindness. You stop being blind to your blindness. That may not be what you expected me to say, but notice this. Notice how Saul loses his ability to see immediately after encountering Jesus. And there's probably a number of reasons for this, but I think one might be that he lost his physical sight so that he could be aware of his spiritual blindness. He may be physically blind now, but nothing's really changed except his awareness of his condition. There's an old saying that says, the first step in getting someone saved is getting them lost first. When you meet Jesus, you stop being blind to our blindness and realize just how lost we are without him. For you, I don't know, maybe just one too many times feeling like your anxiety has stolen life from you, that you can't escape it. It's stealing from you. You don't know what to do. Maybe it's one too many conversations with your spouse where they tell you they don't feel loved, they don't feel cared for, they're unhappy. Maybe for you, it's a realization that one too many times I look in the mirror and I go, man, the only person I care about in life is me. And I've been living for myself and I'm hurting the people I love the most. I don't know what it is for you this morning or where you are 
But I wonder if perhaps that struggle that you're facing this morning, that you're in, maybe, just maybe, is not a sign that God's abandoned you or that God is judging you, but rather it's his love and his mercy and that he's trying to get you to come to him. I won't say that's the reason 100% of the time or even 50% of the time, but I will say if this morning you are far from Jesus, maybe if you've never even met him before, that struggle you're in might just be there to point you to him and to make you aware of just how lost we are without him. Because when you meet Jesus, you stop being blind to your blindness. I'm gonna skip verses 10 through 16 this morning for the sake of time, but as we saw when Joe read, there's another character that get introduced to the story named Ananias. Now, Ananias, we don't know a ton about, but he's a faithful follower of Jesus. He does something incredibly bold by going to this man, and so we'll pick it up in verse 17. Then Ananias, as he was directed, went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So Ananias goes, right? He does his part. In fact, it's an incredible feat of courage to go visit a man whose goal in life is to put you in jail and make you miserable, to end your influence, And yet he goes in faith because he feels like God has directed him to do this. And even more importantly, not only how radical Ananias' faith is, but don't skip over what happens in verse 18. We've seen it so many times it becomes familiar. Verse 18, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. What happens when you meet Jesus I think today the second thing that happens when you meet Jesus is that you meet grace. And when you meet grace, you can never be the same. Saul, the Pharisee, the lover of God, the devoted protector of God's way, the greatest persecutor of the church in this time period, meets Jesus and gets saved and gets baptized. A man who, like all of us at some point in our lives, was blind to who Jesus really is, moves from blindness to sight. He moves from hating the church to loving Jesus, the head of the church. He gets baptized. He gets filled with the Spirit. He moves from death to life, both for the rest of his days on earth and for eternity after. Do not miss how radical, how impossible this transformation is, church. There's no way that this should have happened. Of all the people on earth at the time, if you made a bottom 10 list of people most likely to convert to Christianity, Saul may have been at the bottom of that list or the top. I'm not really sure how that works. I mean, it's about as likely as Von Miller becoming mayor, Charlotte, North Carolina, home of the Carolina Panthers, or the Chiefs ever making it back to the Super Bowl ever again, Darvin Wallace. But in all seriousness, when you meet Jesus, you meet grace. Grace is God reaching out in love to an enemy of his. Grace is being struck blind so that God can open your eyes and see him for the first time. Grace is Ananias risking his life to pray for the soul of a man sworn to destroy him. Grace is the power to turn Saul of Tarsus, enemy of Jesus, persecutor of the church, into Paul. 
missionary to the non-Jewish world, author of two-thirds of the books of the New Testament. Grace is Jesus on a cross dying the death that you and I deserve so that we might have eternal life with him based on nothing you or I did or could ever do to deserve it. When you meet Jesus, you meet grace, and when you meet grace, everything changes. Now, if the story ended here in verse 18, and it doesn't, but if it did, I think that would be okay. And why do I say that? I think that too often in American Christianity, we get wrapped up in outcomes. We live in a results-based culture, right? And we want to see results like yesterday. I, for one, am definitely guilty of this. I prefer the Jim Harbaugh approach to life and not to wear khakis all the time and have this going on. But um, instead, the approach where you show up, you come into a situation, it's not great. You work super, super hard. And last year, your team was four and eight. This year, your team's eight and four. Next year, your team's undefeated, number two in the country, knocking on the door of a national championship. This guy, anywhere he goes, he wins right away. This guy gets results. I want to be that guy, right? Don't you? Doesn't everyone want to be that guy? But lucky for me and lucky for you, that's not what God expects of us. Because the point of the gospel is not behavior as much as we like to think it is. Does it affect behavior? Yes, absolutely, no question. Jesus in Matthew 7, 16 says, you will recognize them by their fruit. In other words, behavior is a litmus test of what's going on in someone's heart. But please, this morning, I'm asking you, do not get behavior change confused with the gospel. Because the point of the gospel is not behavior. The point of the gospel is Jesus Christ. A heart that sees Jesus for who he really is, that recognizes he's worth more than all riches, all fame, all glory, all comforts, all success, anything this world can offer. A heart that sees that will naturally live differently. A heart that's met Jesus, that has met grace, that's no longer bound by religion or works or the lie that you have to earn forgiveness. You have to earn acceptance. You have to earn favor with God through behavior. I mean, Saul, Saul was the king of behavior. No one could touch him when it came to religious merit, he tells us in the book of Philippians. I mean, he was a head and shoulders above everyone else. But you know what happened when he met Jesus? He threw all of that away. Philippians 3, 4 through 8 says this. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he's about to list the religious trophies on his mantle. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, but... But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. A heart that has met grace in the person of Jesus Christ cannot help but be changed, but it does not start there. It starts with faith that Jesus truly is the son of God who died to make a way for sinners like you and me to have a relationship with God again based on nothing we did that leads to eternal life. That is the gospel. That is grace. What happens when you meet Jesus is that you meet grace and grace changes everything. Finally, as I close this morning, I wanna read the final two verses of this story starting halfway through verse 19. 
Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Does anyone else know anyone in their life that just won't stop talking about something they're excited about? Does anyone else? Don't ra- if it's the person next to you, maybe don't raise your hand. But I've got a friend um, who just, he's just passionate about everything. He loves sharing what's new, what's on the forefront of his mind, what he discovered. And he discovered a book a while back that he thought was the greatest book, life-changing book, all these tips, all this stuff that's going to make you a better person. And he knows Jesus, and it wasn't the Bible, and we had a conversation about that. But he was so excited about this book that it got to the point where a guy came to his door one time and tried to sell a home security system to him. And he said, hey, can I, can I take a few minutes of your time to sell this system to you? I'd like to tell you about it. And my friend goes, you know, um, I'll let you do that. But here's the deal. I will, I will let you sell me your product if you'll give me a few minutes of your time for me to tell you something I'm passionate about. So as a friend, I'm sitting there, and I was like, I cut in. I go, dude, nice job. Way to find an opportunity to share the gospel with a stranger. And he kind of looks at me, and he goes, well, that's, that's not really what I said. I told him about this book that he needed to read that would change his life, and then we talked about real estate investing for half an hour. (laughs) All right, then. Priorities, bro. Priorities. But the fact is we all have some of that in us, right? When we find something exciting, something amazing, something that changed our life, we can't help but want to share it with those around us. And so the third thing, the final thing that happens when you meet Jesus, if you're taking notes this morning, is this. You cannot wait for others to meet him too. When you've truly discovered the incredible, crazy love of God in Jesus Christ, when you've been set free from the power of sin and death in your life to walk in true freedom for the first time, you can't help but want that for everyone else you know. Saul, sworn enemy of the church, meets Jesus, and before long, he's out in the local synagogues, right? The local churches of the day, telling people to believe in Jesus as the son of God. I mean, guys, this is crazy. It's about, I mean, this happening is about as likely as the Cubs actually winning the World Series. Oh, I stepped on some toes. All right, it's about as likely as the Rockies ever making it to the World Series, okay? (laughs) Truth hurts, guys, I'm sorry. I mean, that would be crazy, right? But love makes us do some crazy things sometimes. I remember one time when I was 17, I met this girl. I was crazy about this girl. And I got a text really late on a school night. It must have been 10 o'clock, 10.30. And, and she said, hey, I got a paper due tomorrow, and, and I'd really like some help editing it, and you're just so good at writing. Could you come and or could you help me? And, and keep in mind, the email was certainly around at the time, but that was not on my mind at all. I said, yeah, I'd love to come over. And so late at night, I drove all the way across town and helped this girl who I ended up marrying edit a paper that needed no help at all. Because when you're in love, you do crazy things. When you finally met the one who can break your chains and set you free, you will do some crazy things, right? Crazy things like serving people you don't even know and maybe don't even like that much for free, at the cost of your time and your comfort. Crazy things like giving away money because you've received everything you ever need in Jesus and everything else is just icing on top. Crazy things like sharing your faith with someone you'd rather not have that conversation with. 
Crazy things like saying no to something I might love so someone else can say yes to Jesus. As a church, we've committed ourselves to the value of life transformation, which means that we will propel each other towards a transforming relationship with Jesus. You see, church, who we are and what we do isn't primarily about us or who we are or what we do. It's about him. Churches exist, we exist to introduce and reintroduce people to Jesus, period. Anything else, anything that doesn't help people meet Jesus, whether for the first time or the 101st time, is a distraction. Transformation is a buzzword in our culture, right? Everyone wants to be transformed. Transform your marriage. Transform your living room. Transform your abs. I need that. Transform whatever, right? It's all over the place. Everyone wants to be transformed. And it's a big deal to us as a church. But guys, the heart of transformation, real transformation, is the acknowledgement that we cannot transform ourselves. That I'm not enough to transform myself I'm not enough to transform you. You're not enough to transform the ones that you love, but Jesus is enough. Our job as followers of Jesus is not to change anybody, but to do what it takes in our personal lives and in our lives as a church to introduce people to Jesus because he is enough. Because when you meet Jesus, you can't help but want others to meet him too. As we wrap up this morning and let this text become a part of our identity, Let me ask a hard question of us this morning. Is there anything worth holding on to if it keeps you or someone else from meeting Jesus Christ? For some of us in this room, there are areas of our lives where we're walking in anything but freedom. There's sin that's stealing the abundant life from you that Jesus promised and won for you in him. Your ability to walk as a representative of Jesus Christ in this world is being held back by the sin in your life that's stealing from you. Now, don't let me confuse you. The love of God is something you cannot earn, you cannot lose, but the degree of freedom and power in which you walk in this life is dependent upon your willingness to walk in step with Jesus, to be holy as the Lord your God is holy. This morning, I think some of us need to be transformed by grace again. Others of us in here, if you're honest, are struggling through this church transition. There's a lot of things that could be said about that. But here's what I feel like the Lord is saying to us this morning, and it's this. I'm enough. It may or may not look like you want. It may or may not sound like you want. It may or may not be what you want. I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if Jesus Christ is at the center of it, and if it points people to a transforming relationship with him, it's going to be okay. It's not just gonna be okay, it's gonna be great. As we finish this morning, I want us to take a moment, I wanted to reflect on that moment in our lives when we saw Jesus for the first time. When we, sorry, when we realized our need for him, we realized our lostness, we realized our need for a savior. I think this morning, some of us not need a reintroduction to him and some of us might need to meet him for the first time. I'd ask us, we would do something a little different this morning. If you'd bow your head and close your eyes with me. Sorry. I don't want to miss this moment this morning for us to encounter Jesus Christ. 
So this morning, whether you've come here your whole life or this is your first Sunday, I want to ask if you'd be so bold in faith to think for a moment, God, where do I, where do I need you? God, what is holding me back from my life in you this morning? God, do I know you? Have I met you? Let the Lord speak to you on that for a moment. And it'd be so bold if this morning, if you say, no, I need Jesus. I need him. I don't know if it's for the first time. I don't know what that means. If it's for the 101st time, if you need Jesus this morning, would you be so bold? Would you put your hand up in faith? Not because of me, not so I can see it, but just as an act of faith of an inward reality saying, Jesus, I need you. I declare this morning, Jesus, this morning, I want life. I want freedom. I want what you have. Praise God. Salvation has come to this house this morning. Let me pray for you, Father. Thank you for this church. Thank you for you. Thank you for your son. God, I pray as we walk in our steps of faith, God, if we take just that one step, God, to get closer to you, God, I pray you bless everyone in this room, Father, with life with you, with an encounter with your spirit, Father. As we stand, as we worship in a moment, God, I pray that you'd be so close in these times, in this place, God, that we would meet you again and find the one whom our soul loves. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm about to sing a song in a moment that I specifically asked for that talks about being set free, being blind and seeing for the first time. And Joe's gonna talk about communion here in a moment. But as we sing that, I pray, would you just let those words wash over you for a moment? And then would you declare them if they're true for you this morning? We, we come to this table as broken vessels. Um, Paul, um, one time I asked God if he could remove this thorn from my side. And the words that came whispering back to Paul's heart was, my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect when you come to me raw. And we come to this communion table raw. We know we are sinners. Paul wrote it, for all have sinned. For all of us are knuckleheads. We, we don't get it. We're trying to be transformed. Um, we come to this table this morning raw. And on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took bread. After giving thanks and praise, he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and said, take and eat. This is my body, which will be broken and given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. Again, after giving thanks and praise, he gave the cup to his disciples and said, take and drink. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. My blood will be shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us this day. And thank you for loving broken vessels like me and every one of us in this room. Lord, we come before you um, raw this morning. We hold this up in your sweet name, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. All are welcome to this table. All who trust that Christ Jesus is their Savior are welcome to this table. You don't have to say amen. Um, and now break off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, and say amen. Say amen. Um, and now we profess our faith. Um, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Come. The table is set.